Lord, we come before you this morning in eager anticipation, not only of our gathering this evening, but also eager to hear from you. Spirit, open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Give us confidence that we are yours and make us into a people who are steadfast in hope, knowing that Jesus has delivered us from the wrath to come. Speak, O Lord, for your people are listening. Amen. During the stay-at-home order, I, like many of you, saw a great opportunity to use the extended time at home to to reset some bad habits and finish some much-needed at-home projects. I especially was looking forward to painting our kids' bathroom and implementing a new exercise routine. And while none of these things happened, I was able to find a very riveting show on Amazon Prime called Fake or Fortune. The show follows an investigative journalist and a world-renowned art dealer as they set out to prove whether once discarded lost paintings could actually be worth millions of dollars. In order to test whether these paintings were authentic works by artists like Monet or Renoir, they utilize modern forensic science and detective work to analyze the authenticity of the painting. They would hire art experts to examine the brush strokes to see if these strokes match the work of a master artist or a work of a forger. They would study the elemental structure of the paint used by the artist. They would travel the world to track down the provenance of the painting, tracing back the painting's ownership as close to the original artist as possible. And they would even take an x-ray of the painting to see if there was a hidden picture below the surface. And at the climax of the show, a panel of experts give their verdict as to whether the painting is a fake or a fortune. As we look to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, we find a young church asking if what had happened to them was a work of God or the work of a forger. This church was facing persecution that came in part by way of false teachers planting seeds of doubt about the authenticity of Paul's message, which in turn was casting doubt on the legitimacy of their own faith and ultimately the reliability of the hope of the second coming of Christ. And Paul, their spiritual father in the faith, who loves this church dearly, hears of their trials and confusion and opens his letter with a prayer of thanksgiving. A prayer that reminds his spiritual children of the clear evidence of God's handiwork in their lives. Just as the hand of a master artist leaves clues of his work, so too God makes evident the brushstrokes of salvation on those whom he has chosen in Christ. So as we look at the beginning of this letter, we will see Paul and his companions encourage the Thessalonians by pointing out the clear evidence that they are indeed an authentic work of God the master artist of heaven. Therefore, as we consider the evidence of God's work described for us, I want us to then examine the evidence of the gospel work in our own lives, that we too may give thanks to God and have confidence on the day of judgment. So what evidence does Paul ground his confidence that the Thessalonians are truly a work of God? We look at the passage, there are going to be four evidences of an authentic work of God. Four evidences of an authentic work of God. First, we'll see in verse 1 the evidence of gospel community. 
Number two, the evidence of gospel color in verses two and three. We'll see the evidence of gospel conviction in verses four through seven, and the evidence of gospel conversion in verse eight through 10. First, let's look at the evidence of gospel community. The evidence of gospel community. Look at verse one again with me. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Just from the greeting, you can see Paul and his companions' confidence in the authenticity of the Thessalonians' faith as he addresses them as the church. And this church, meaning assembly, is not just any assembly of people, but a unique congregation that is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul first arrived in the Thessalonian area, there was not a community in God, and now there is a community in the city of Thessalonica that is now set apart, characterized by a new identity. And how do these people get this new identity? How did this new community get formed? Well, we can read about how the gospel came to this community uh, in the book of Acts chapter 17. And if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to, uh, to turn there. Paul is in his second missionary journey, and Paul and Silvanus, also known as Silas, have just been completely beaten to a pulp in the city of Philippi. But they continue on with their mission, along with a new disciple named Timothy, and come to the important city of Thessalonica, a city located on the coast and is located in the northern part of modern-day Greece. Let's see how this gospel community came to be in Acts 17, verses 1 to 4. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So as was Paul's custom, when he came into a city, he would start preaching the gospel from the Old Testament in a synagogue, if the city had one. And for three weeks, he reasons with them and explains that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and it was necessary for Jesus to die and rise again from the dead. And we see through his preaching, a variety of different people believed and were saved. Some were Jews, some were Greeks, and quite a few women of prominence in the city. Yet a few verses later in Acts 17, we read about an angry mob that has formed and forces Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of town. With Paul's ministry cut short, he maybe has, has only been there about three weeks he leaves behind this infant church with little discipleship, making them susceptible to false teaching and discouragement. And like a, a mother who can't go to sleep at night until she hears her, her teenager come through the front door, Paul's heart is anxious for his spiritual children. And when he can't stand it any longer, he couldn't wait to hear how they were doing, he, he sends a sort of ancient text message. Right? He sends Timothy uh, on a, the long journey back to check on them, uh, as we'll read about in chapter 3. 
And months later, news arrives back from Timothy that God has preserved his church. They have kept the faith even under much affliction, uh, even though they do have some doctrinal confusion. Paul then writes the letter of 1 Thessalonians in response to this report. And in this powerful greeting, we see Paul boldly affirm their new identity in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. So the first evidence we see of God's handiwork is that through the preaching of the gospel, God has set apart a distinct community, a community not united by gender or our particular ethnicity or socioeconomic status, but unified by their common faith in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. And furthermore, we see that this new gospel community in God is also characterized by grace and peace. Paul pronounces grace and peace upon this new community, not just as a recognition of the unmerited gift of salvation given to them in Christ, but a declaration that God's grace and peace now orders all of their relationships. They are no longer people marked with strife and pride or under God's wrath, but they are a gospel community engraved with grace and peace by God by the God of grace and peace. And church, my my prayer for us this evening as the assembled people of God once again in the community of Castleton, that we would demonstrate evidence of God's grace and peace because of what God has done through us in Christ. There are so many uh, opportunities in our day to show uh, that our church community is different than anything that the world can create. Specifically this evening, we will most likely see some people wearing masks and others not. And so the question tonight will be whether our hearts will be quick to judge motives or hearts, or will will we be ready to give grace to all who come to differing convictions? Furthermore, at a time when our nation is at a place of unrest and turmoil, Will we see, as far as it depends on us, will we, will we be seen as peacemakers, ready to be reconciled to one another because we know God has made peace with us? Will we be known as peacemakers or will we stir up strife, either on social media or allow our political opinions or our pride to practically nullify our witness? When the gospel is preached, God creates a people marked by grace and peace because their identity is now hidden in the God of grace and peace. Paul saw evidence of a genuine gospel community and so confidently greets them as the church in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And church, I cannot wait to greet you all this evening in the same grace and peace of Jesus. So the first evidence we saw of an authentic work of God is the creation of a gospel community. Secondly, we see the evidence of gospel color. The evidence of gospel color in verses 2 and 3. Look back there with me. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, since I started this sermon with an art illustration, I I, I don't want to give you the impression that I have any artistic ability uh, or or knowledge. Uh, My mom always used to tell me that 
as a kid, uh, craft time was like torture for me. I couldn't wait to, to finish that and go on to the next thing. Uh, nevertheless, as I think back, you know, to any art lesson that I had as a, as a kid in elementary school, I know they taught us about the three primary colors, right? Red, blue, and yellow. And these colors are called primary because they can't be created by mixing other colors, and they are essential to making all other colors. I think I got that right. Um, and I think it, when we look at verses 2 and 3, I think we see Paul give thanksgiving to God because he sees the three primary colors of authentic Christianity in the lives of the Thessalonians. Faith, love, and hope. And this triad of primary gospel colors shows up all over the New Testament as they are essential evidences of God's work of redemption in believers. And Paul is filled with thanksgiving because these invisible virtues are made visible in the lives of the Thessalonians. And Paul tells them that he is always thanking God for them because he reflects and remembers them constantly in his prayers as he recalls the gospel at work in their lives, giving him confidence that his ministry, though cut short, was not in vain. Paul's overflow of thanksgiving to God is what should happen in us as we see God at work in the lives of others. Now, it's, it's really important that we see and we notice that Paul does not thank the Thessalonians for the evidences of their faith, love, and hope, but he thanks God for the work he is doing in them. Just like you don't praise the, the owner of, of a painting for the beautiful brush strokes and vivid colors, but you praise the artist who did the work. Paul is, is remembering the evidence of the master's work manifested in the Thessalonians, thanking God specifically for their work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, and steadfastness inspired by hope. First, what does he mean by work of faith? Well, he means that the Thessalonians' faith was not only expressed in word, but their faith was made evident by how they lived in service to God. Most specifically, and most likely displayed in their own evangelism, as we'll see later on in this passage. Yeah, we are not saved by our work, but our faith will work. As John Calvin famously helps us to remember, we are justified through faith alone, but faith that justifies is never alone. True faith will be authenticated by how faith is made evident in the lives of believers. A true work of God will produce spiritual fruit, the fruit of faith, and Paul sees that in the Thessalonians. Paul also thanks God for their labor of love. This phrase, again, I think it is common to us and into the world as it's often described, right, as uh, a, a task or a work that you do that really doesn't feel like work. Uh, a task done for pleasure and not just a, a reward or compensation. Right? I, I love mowing my lawn. It is a labor of love to, to, to mow my lawn. It, it gives me much joy to see those nice streamlined lines uh, and nice lush green grass. Yet in our big biblical context, this labor of love is an action born out of love for God or love for fellow Christians or love of neighbor. When the love of God penetrates your heart, you are moved towards laboring for the good of others and you actually find godly pleasure in doing so. 
we get joy and pleasure in serving others rather than serving ourselves. And this is evidence of God's work in us. And, and church, when I think of laboring in love, I think of so many uh, of you. I, I give thanks to God for the way you all labor in love for those around you. Specifically, I'm, I'm so thankful for, for all of you who are so quick to sign up to bring meals to a family in need because the Lord has given you joy in serving. And when you see this, this new platform tonight where the word of God will be proclaimed and sung, you can know it is a testament to God's love at work in the hearts of some of our men in our church. The last of these primary gospel colors of authentic Christianity is hope. Hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. A hope that is alive because Jesus is alive. A hope that extends far beyond this earth into the next. A hope that produced a steadfast endurance in the Thessalonians as they endured persecution. A hope that has a visible effect. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity about the visible effect of this hope when he writes, If you read history, you will find Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. From the apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire to the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. When the gospel is preached to you and you hear about the kingdom that is to come, a kingdom without sin or death, a kingdom that has Jesus on the throne executing perfect justice and righteousness and making all things new, it will produce in us a spiritual endurance even through suffering. If you read through the, the hymns and songs that the African-American slaves embraced under the worst kinds of suffering, you'll notice a theme of hope. Hope not just in freedom from slavery on this earth, but the hope of the eternal freedom that comes with the coming reign and rule of Jesus. Example of this is the hymn, Come Lord and Tarry Not. Here's just a few stanzas of that, of that hymn. Come, Lord, and tarry not, bring the long look for day. Oh, why these years of waiting here, these ages of decay? Come, for thy saints still wait, daily ascends their sigh. The spirit and the bride say, come, dost thou not hear the cry? Oh, come, make all things new, come, make all things new. Build up this ruined earth, come, make all things new. I don't think it's an accident that Paul ends this triad of gospel color with hope rather than love, which I think we're used to, to hearing because it's been quoted so often from 1 Corinthians 13. This young church's hope has been threatened by false teachers, making false claims about the second coming. And in both letters to the Thessalonians, Paul focuses a significant amount of time on the hope that is to come because Paul knows that Satan is looking to steal their hope and tempt them to not finish the race set before them. And I think we would do well to remember that the moment we take our eyes off the hope that we have in the coming reign of, of Jesus, we will risk losing our footing. Like Peter, 
who sinks into the water as he takes his eyes off Jesus in the storm. Again, Paul will go into greater detail about how these primary gospel colors should show up in our lives as we wait for Christ's return as we unpack the rest of this book. But we should ponder, at least right now, whether these gospel colors characterize our lives or whether the gospel colors have faded like a painting that has gathered dust and varnish over years of inattention. And my prayer is that as we gather again tonight, that our faith would be strengthened as we see the saints join in song together, and that our love for him would grow, and that our hope in Jesus would give us a steadfastness that we need in our day. So we've seen evidence of a new community, we've seen evidence of gospel color, and now we'll see the evidence of gospel conviction, the evidence of gospel conviction in verses 4 through 6. Look at those verses with me. For we knew, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Uh, last week, my wife Jessica and I celebrated our sixth wedding anniversary. And as we reminisced over our wedding day, I remembered that I was more nervous for the rehearsal dinner rather than the wedding, because for some reason we got the, the bright idea that we would, we would sing a duet together in front of all our friends and, and family. And, uh, and no, I, we won't be repeating that anytime soon. And so often when you, when you think of uh, wedding days and TV shows and in movies, the, the bride or the groom is asked by somebody, hey, are you, are you getting cold feet about, about the wedding? You having second thoughts? And I praise the Lord that that was not my experience at all. The Lord had fully convinced me that Jessica was the one that I was meant to marry. Her character, her beauty, her love for the Lord made it easy to commit my life to her. And we see in our text that Paul had plenty of evidence that God had chosen for himself a bride in love within the city of Thessalonica. And Paul believes this to be true because he remembers that when the, when the word of God was preached with conviction, his hearers responded as those who were brought under conviction of the Holy Spirit, fully convinced that Jesus was the Christ. Paul's language of loving election echoes the language used in the Old Testament where God calls Israel his chosen people. We see this in Deuteronomy Chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, says this, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So Paul sees this church as the chosen people of God, not marked out by ethnicity, but by faith. Faith that was clearly at work in them. 
we see in verses 4 and 5. Paul knows that they are a work of God because when the gospel was preached, it was accompanied with power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And conviction here does not mean that they were fully convicted in sin, which is also true, but rather conviction here refers to a deep inward persuasion of the truth of the gospel, that the Holy Spirit has done a work in their hearts more impressive and more lasting than any worldly rhetoric could have or even a miraculous sign could accomplish. They were fully convinced and assured that the good news of the gospel was true. The news that God in his love sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who came in the likeness of men and lived a sinless life and then willingly died a criminal's death so that his enemies might be delivered from the wrath to come and that all who come to him in faith would receive forgiveness from their sins and receive eternal life with their creator. The news that they no longer had to fear death for Jesus rose from the grave, securing their hope for the life to come. This gospel, which Romans 1 calls the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, had a discernible spiritual effect on the Thessalonians that both speaker and listener were convinced that the Holy Spirit was at work. And this, this wasn't just a, a simple spiritual high moment like many Christians may have at a, a summer camp where you threw the, the pine cone of sin into the fire, but rather the Holy Spirit was made manifest in them as their lives began to imitate their Savior by even having joy in affliction. Look back to the middle of verse 5 with me. It says, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. As we saw in Acts 17, the Thessalonians heard the word of God and believed, and soon after were under immense pressure and persecution. Nevertheless, in spite of this affliction, Paul is thanking God as he remembers that they changed their pattern of living and possessed a joy that can only come from the Holy Spirit. A joy that resembled his own joy in all of his afflictions and the joy of Jesus that was set before him as he endured the cross. The Thessalonians showed that they were a work of God because they were given a Holy Spirit conviction that demonstrated through their receiving of the word with joy even in affliction a joy that is not natural to this world, and so then it must come from another world. Again, anyone can be emotionally moved by a powerful message, but true Holy Spirit conviction is made evident when the gospel produces a new pattern of life and is seen in affliction, seen joy within this affliction. And friends, I want to ask you, are, are you fully convinced that Jesus says who he says he is? And one way you can test your own heart is wondering how, how you handle afflictions or how you handle trials. Again, we won't handle trials perfectly, but in the midst of trial, are you holding on to the promise that God is actually refining and strengthening your faith through them? Or do you curse him for not making your life easier? And I pray that the Holy Spirit would grant us his conviction 
and this supernatural joy today as many of you face affliction. As we'll see in our final few verses, that these stories of supernatural joy and affliction spread quickly and they bring glory to God. We've seen the evidence piling up as, as we work through Paul's Thanksgiving. We've seen the evidence of gospel community, the evidence of gospel primary colors, evidence of gospel conviction from the Holy Spirit, and finally, we see the last piece of evidence that the Thessalonian church is a masterpiece of God in verses 8 through 10. The evidence of gospel conversion. The evidence of gospel conversion. Look at verses 8 and 10. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We see in this passage that the Thessalonians' faith went viral, like a John Krasinski Some Good News episode during the lockdown. News about what God had done spread not only to the surrounding regions, but everywhere Paul went. I don't know if you've ever been the, the person who, who sees a viral video like a month or two too late, and you, and you share it with all, all your friends, and then you realize, oh man, they've, they've all already seen it before. Well, Paul, Paul kind of is that guy, you know, and he couldn't be happier about it. Every, everywhere he went, he encountered people who had already heard of what God was doing in Thessalonica. And we see the news about the church had actually paved the way for Paul's missionary efforts. The Thessalonians themselves had become a certificate of authenticity to the power of the gospel that Paul was preaching to the world. The ones who imitated Paul's pattern of life now became the ones that were being imitated. And I think it's important that we ask ourselves, okay, what, what specifically was being said about the Thessalonians? What was kind of the scuttlebutt? You know, what was going viral? Was the news that was spreading an accurate picture of what was happening? When well, verses 9 to 10, I think we read that what, we, what they were hearing was not only accurate, but it also gives us one of the clearest definitions of conversion in the scriptures. The message that sounded forth comes to us in another set of three, giving us three indications of true gospel conversion. To turn, to serve, and to wait. They turn from their idols to serve the living God and to wait for his son from heaven. And this is the story of, of every Christian whether you were saved at an early age or converted much later in life, whether your idolatry was secret to the world or visible to all, someone brought you the gospel, you repented of your sin and turned from your life of service to idols to serve the only true and living God, and now you wait eagerly for your faith to be made sight. Now, for the Thessalonians who lived in a pagan society where there were temples and shrines to a myriad of false gods, their turn from idolatry was, was clear. 
They didn't just add Jesus to their running list of gods, but they actually turned their backs on their old patterns of worship and served God alone, who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. They who were dead in their sin were made alive in Christ, and this transformation was visible to all. And while their idolatry may may look different, this is the story of all who are in the family of God. Our conversion is not just an emotional and spiritual experience, but a turning from the idols of self, of comfort, of control, of pleasure, and a myriad of other examples towards the only one who is worthy of praise, the only one who can deliver us from the wrath that is to come. And what has been done invisibly by the Spirit will be made visible. As Ephesians 2 reminds us that since we are God's workmanship, he has good works for us to walk in. Again, we are not fundamentally changed by God in order to then just sit and wait for Jesus to come. Like we're trying to kill time waiting for the internet guy to come between the hours of of 8 and 4. No, no, our, our life in Christ, our hope in the coming deliverance should spur us on to love and good deeds as it did the Thessalonians, and cause others around us to thank God for the work that he is doing. So in conclusion, we have seen Paul encourage the Thessalonians as he give thanks to God for their clear evidence uh, of God's handiwork in their lives. So I want us to, to think, for us, what does this mean for us as individuals and for us as a church? What should we do with all this evidence that we've seen Paul lay out here? First, I think if if we believe that the gospel truly changes lives and God's internal work is, is going to be made visible, I think it's right for us to ask ourselves, what evidence are we showing that the Holy Spirit is at work in us? What evidence do you see of God working in you? Now, if you're struggling, uh, with, with doubt or struggling to see evidence of God's work in your life, I first want to encourage you that the fact that you're sitting down and to, and to watch a screen of somebody preaching the gospel, that's, that's a good sign that God's at work in you. The next thing I'd encourage you with is before you, you do a lot of self-introspection, I would ask a trusted Christian friend to help you thank God for the work that he's doing in your life. Uh, again, so many of us are, are tempted towards a almost a morbid introspection uh, that we focus only on our sin and, and it's hard for us to see God at work in, in our lives. And this is why gospel community and godly friends who know you are so, so important as we run this race of faith and to keep us encouraged in the Lord. And it's also important not just to look at, at how the last week has gone, but rather how have the last two, three for five years have gone in your walk with the Lord and be able to see God progressively sanctifying you over time. Again, we, we will never be sinless this side of heaven, but as J.C. Ryle says, a Christian will be marked by an inner warfare, but also an inner peace. Always fighting against idolatry, but always at peace knowing that Jesus has taken the punishment reserved for you. 
And if you're not sure what lingering idols that are still in your heart that God is calling you to turn from today, uh, one easy way to identify lingering idols is to finish the sentence, or fill in the blank. If only I had blank, then I would be happy. If only I had this, then life would be better. Then I would be content. And whatever you fill in the blank there is most likely what you are worshiping rather than God. And God is calling you to turn from those things and to serve the living God. And wherever God has you today, whether you're a Christian or not, God is calling us, all of us this morning, to turn, to serve, and to wait for him. And lastly, I want us to think about these questions as a church. I think the Lord has us in a very unique stage. We sort of have a fresh start as we change our name to Castleton Community Church. And right now, that, may, that name means very little, if anything, to the community around us. But in five years, in ten years, what will come to mind when they think of our church? Will we be known as a people whose faith is at work, whose labor is prompted by love, and whose hope is steadfast? Will we be bold with the gospel and grounded in love? And will others want to imitate us as we imitate Christ? And will the good news of the gospel spread through us? One author puts it, no church can spread the gospel with any degree of integrity, let alone credibility, unless it has been visibly changed by the gospel it preaches. If we do not bear fruit of faith, we will have little hope of having any credibility in our community. Asymptomatic Christianity does not spread. Brothers and sisters, we live in what seems to be pretty extraordinary times in our nation's history. And we must also see this as a unique opportunity to display to one another and to our community that our hope is not on this earth, but in heaven. That our community does not fear the future, for we know that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and how you brought us from darkness into your marvelous light. Father, our church has a unique opportunity to make a new first impression to our neighbors as Castleton Community Church this evening. And Lord, may we be found faithful witnesses of your gospel as we receive your word. That we would love one another and that we would worship our king that is coming. May our community give thanks to God for the work that you will do through us. We trust you, Lord, and we want all glory be to Christ. Amen.